We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse through their industry. Pulse through their industry. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. Have to be consistent. You got to keep the big picture that hey, we're changing the world. We're changing. The league presents Electric People. Welcome back to another episode of Electric People. Today we have real estate expert Jimmy Rex on the podcast. Thanks for being here, Jimmy. You bet. It's a pleasure, guys. You have a celebrity name, Jimmy Rex. It's uh, I used to stand. Is that even your real name? That's my real name. That's not a moniker. That's not like Dude, when you, just, I used to, you came I, up with that. A, like, another lifetime ago, I did stand-up comedy, and people would ask me every time I got on, is that like, is that your stage name? I'm like, so now I'm just Sounds like a to, Jamie Foxx. It's Jimmy Rex. Right? I know. So I got to do something with it. You know? It's made me much more cognizant of what I've named my kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> Ever like, since. Yep. It's true. Um, for you guys that don't know Jimmy, uh, so Jimmy's a real estate expert. So once a month, we try to have an expert in the field, in some field on the, on the podcast. So um, Jimmy runs a real estate team that sells more per agent than any other real estate team in the state of Utah, uh, was named by the Salt Lake Board of Real Estate as salesperson of the year, has bought and sold over 2,000 properties. You're an investor yourself, and we're excited to learn from you today, man. Thanks for being on. Dude, I appreciate it, man. It's fun. I love talking about it. So um, the point of today is we want to give our guys that are in the industry that are starting to earn really good money some tips and tools and kind of an education on real estate. So before we dive into that, what, what do you spend most of your time doing? You kind of wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, so I mean, my number one thing is helping people buy and sell homes. Okay. And about 60% of the homes that we help buyers buy are to investors. So, you know, like you said, I've sold over 2,000 homes since 2005 is when I started in this. And it's kind of cool because I, when I first got in, we had this super hot market and then I went through the recession, right? Yeah, in 2005. And, I bought my first house in 2006. Yeah. And it felt like everybody was starting to buy homes then, huh? Yeah, I mean, it was the Wild West back then. You could, you know, nothing down. Homes were going crazy. So everybody got buying properties. And then we had, you know, it went off a cliff and I just had to work my guts off you know, through that recession. And I mean, my income was a third of what it was the year before for a couple of years there. And I was still the number one agent in our office, you know, 200 agents. Um, so everybody was hurting. Oh, it was, it was a miserable time to be a real estate agent. Yeah. So the cool thing is though, I've kind of seen everything. I've kind of seen how it's evolved. I know the things that were happening back then that are different now and kind of what to look for. And so, you know, the majority of what I do is just honestly just helping people buy investment properties. I've probably sold, of the 2,000 homes I've sold, over 1,000 of them probably investment properties for people. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's kind of a, a growing specialty for you too. Huh? Yeah, it's funny as well. With, I love Vivint because uh, Vivint Solar, in 2010, I met with my real estate coach and the market had tanked. I mean, it was, nobody had money, nobody was buying. Everyone was scared. If you mm-hmm. remember, there was, you know, everybody was hesitant to do anything. And me and him sat down and he said, let's make a list, everyone you know that has money. And I got a list um, from some of the guys at Vivint. You're like, I have eight. Dude, I literally got a list of the top 50 guys at Vivint. And of the top 15, within a year and a half, I'd sold 14 of them a house. Wow. So, yeah, I went, you know, Chris Burgess, Reno Mendenhall, all those guys that were, um, you know, with Vivint at the time. And um, it was pretty funny. I I just really wanted to find out who was making money, you know, and and then I targeted those people. And so I really got a good feel for summer sales guys. And I mean, there's some properties I sold back then to summer sales guys that cash flow several thousand dollars a month now even. Mm. But yeah, I remember in the early days, you used to rent out the movie theaters. We did a couple of Jimmy Rex parties. We did. Yeah. Well, it's funny because the first time I met with Vivint, because I knew I wanted to get in with all these guys and a buddy of mine was best friends with Bo Gardner. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, dude, I need you to set me up with a lunch with Bo. 
And I finally got, you know, it's funny when I sat down with him, he's like, you got 15 minutes. You know, he, didn't, he didn't know me and, <laughs> in typical Bo fashion, but we ended up talking about two hours. We really connected and he's like, well, what do you want? And I was like, I don't want anything. If I can add value to your guys, I want to do that. Here's a couple things that I do. Like I can rent out a theater for your guys as a recruiting tool. And so that's how that kind of came about. And then we started working and, um, with a bunch of those guys. And that's how I got in with the summer sales guys. We were joking before we started that people that say, I do real estate is a pretty vague term, right? It's like saying I do marketing or I'm a <laughs> consultant or something like that. So what we hope to do is, is dive in and give an understanding um, into real estate as a passive income opportunity, how to get started, um, what to look for, what are good deals, what are bad deals, how you choose. So um, we're excited to dive in. So my first question is a simple one. Where do you see the market right now? Uh, I, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, I'm waiting because some huge crash is coming and you see like on the stock tickers, hey, there's doom is coming. Is it always like that? Yeah, I mean, there's always people. It's funny because I've started putting out videos in about 2004 13, 14, and 15 um, on my Facebook, just saying, you know, talking about all the advantages to real estate. And we can get into some of those, you know, the leverage of real estate, some of these other things. And I kept talking about how the market was going to keep appreciating. And I had a four or five people that would constantly message me like, dude, you're giving bad information. The market's going to crash. Here's a video. Here's this video. So there's always this kind of like, I think a lot of people have PTSD from the crash in 2007, 2008. And so there's this like overwhelming feeling of people that are just like, no, it's always doom and gloom. And I just kept saying, I'm like, look, it's a lot more likely the market's going up 10% than going down 10%. Why do you think that? Um, So there's a couple main factors that I look at. And by the way, uh, I... So I got in young. My first year in real estate, I sold 60 homes. And so I was kind of known as this like little What's feet. normal? Like what? Like five for your oh, first wow. year. Yeah. So it was like a big year. Like so the average like, who agent. Is, who is this guy? The ag- average full-time agent sells like 12 homes a year in the United States. And so like I was kind of this little phenom. And so I got mentored by literally some of the top real estate minds in the entire country. Tom Ferry, Mike Ferry, Bill Pipes, Bob Fitzgerald. These are names that like in real estate or like Todd Peterson and mm-hmm. like those are, you know, who Adam yeah. McClellan, stuff the, like the that. Adam yeah, McClellan's and Ty Williams of the world. I was going exactly. to say me. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so, so I had these guys mentoring me and there's certain factors, there's certain things you can look at to judge the market. So like my mentor told me in November of 2016, I had 13 properties at the time because back then you could buy a home with nothing down. I could actually get paid at closing because I put nothing down and I got a commission. And so, so I would buy your own literally get paid 15 grand to buy a house. Yeah, so that's how ridiculous <laughs> that's a it was. Sweet gig. Yeah, that doesn't that's exist why anymore. You but... sold so many. No. So yeah, so I just <laughs> bought 100 homes. And Ran out of credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so that that really was what was going on. And so my mentor told me, he said, "Sell everything. This thing's going to crash." And uh, and sure enough, it did. And I, I was able to make money on 11 of the 13 homes that I owned. Wow. Um, but but my point is, is so I have the guys that I'm like leaning on and like counting on to give me the information are the top minds in the business. Like Tom Ferry is best friends with Spencer Raskoff, the the CEO founder of Zillow and Gary Vaynerchuk. I mean, these are guys that are studying this stuff. Um, Gary Keller, who owns Keller Williams, he set up an entire um, part of Baylor University, entire division there that only studies real estate markets. And so Mm. the data is a lot more easy to read now than it used to be. So the trends are a lot easier to follow. I mean, they've been super accurate the last five or six years of what the market is going to do as far as appreciation goes. But there's a couple key factors. One of them is the affordability rate. So what does the average person in that market make and what should they be able to afford for a house and what actually is the median price for those homes on a mortgage. That's like the number so one factor. 
That's the number one factor to tell if they're overpriced or not. Because if the average person's making 60 grand and 42% of their income goes to housing and they should be able to pay 1800 a month, but the average mortgage with where rates and affordability is for prices is like 2100, then you know it's too high. If it's 1400, you know it's too low. Mm. So that's how I gauge it. And that's really served me really well. We're still in a place where even though affordability, like uh, the prices have gone up a ton, most of the markets in Utah affordability is still right there in that range. It's a little higher than you'd want it, but not really. And so it shows me that we have plenty of room to go. And then you look at vacancy rates in Utah are 2.1% for as an example, which means basically turnover. Like we need 1400 more homes in Utah County alone than what currently exists. So there's just, there's these little factors like that that play into it. But the biggest thing is if you understand what caused the collapse in 2007 versus today, there's three or four main things that don't exist that existed back then. And if you want, yeah. I can touch yeah, on those real quick because this is how I, I, I to me, like in, I will put my name on this all day long. Like the higher end stuff for sure can come down. We might end up seeing where the market fluctuates three to 5% down or up, but that's a pretty regular market. And as long as you're buying for the long haul, it doesn't matter either way. But there's a couple main things that happened before. Number one is, you could buy a home with nothing down. Mm -hmm. And now, ever since 2009, if you bought a home, you had to put, as an investment property, you had to put at least 20% down. I bought my first house with nothing down. And I qualified for the Utah first time oh, home buyer were, When thing. Obama did that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I didn't pay any money. You got they paid grand. my closing costs. <laughs> I got some money. Yeah. It was crazy. I was like, buying yeah. houses is awesome. I remember when I bought a home down here in Provo up by the Seven Peaks area, mm. that area up there with those big homes. Um, I remember I got qualified for a loan and they were like, you know, based on your income, you qualify for X amount of money. And I'm just a young, dumb kid who thinks, oh, then that's the that's my price range that I should be looking at. That's right. like, I just assumed there were guardrails in place to prevent someone from... You're like, the government's got it. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like, oh, they must just say, oh, based on his income, this is what he can afford. And so I start looking at homes that cost that much. And then, you know. It's a common problem that happened. Those people, like, you get told that you can afford, you know, up to 2500 a month, for example, or something, right? And you're like, oh, I don't know what that means. They're like, well, it means you can buy a house for 500000 or four fifty or whatever, which in reality, you probably shouldn't have ever been in a house that big. Right. A lot of people got in trouble. But so the biggest, that's a huge issue. So anybody that's bought a home and is an investment property since 2000, you can't buy it without putting 20% down. At least that's you the You gotta minimum. put 20 down, yeah, so, right? So think about it. So before, what would happen? So I met a mailman one time. I was out in Harriman. I was calling for sale by owners. This guy made 45 grand a year, literally a mailman. And, uh, and he owned two homes that he owed 600 and 650,000 on. He put nothing down. Back then you could do what was called stated income. They literally called yeah. you and asked how much yeah. you made and you told them. Like that was it. Like that was the that was the guardrail that they yeah. had in place, right? And so this guy was I mean his mortgage was like 4200 a month on each house. Like he obviously wasn't paying it. And I said, "Dude, look down the street. There was 132 homes for sale on his block alone." out of 133, I'm not joking. Like the entire cove was for sale. And anyway, so that guy obviously was gonna let his homes go. Well, let's say you live in that neighborhood and you bought your home for even for 500, right? But now all the neighbors are selling for 420, 400 because they're just letting them go to the bank. Well, you've done it the right way, but you still owe 500, 550. Well, mm -hmm. you're gonna buy the neighbor house for 400 and let yours go. Like that's what kept happening. So it was just complete chaos. 
Um, so that's factor number one. Is that and that's not happening today. No, none of that's happening. You can't buy an investment property unless you put 20% down. Mm. Um, so anybody that's bought a home since 2009 thinks they're really good at real estate because the market has been, this is the second longest bull market for real estate we've ever had in the United States. Since 2009, it's been going up month over month every single month. Uh, nationally, and so for nine years, yeah. So wow. think about that. So anybody that's bought a home in the last nine years has equity in their house. So not only does every investment have at least twenty percent equity, most of them have forty to eighty, fifty, sixty percent equity because they've all gone up in this time frame as well. Utah's gone up twenty-seven percent since two thousand nine. Is it the same? I mean, a lot of our sales force is coastal, so we have a ton of guys in California, a ton of guys in the Northeast, down in Florida. Is it? the same market to market is? So the same factors play in. So you wanna look at that affordability again. Like if the average person there should be able to afford X amount of home, but they're selling for a lot more, mm -hmm. then that means it probably can come down. We're for sure gonna see markets come down a little bit on the higher end stuff. A lot of the coasts and things like that, California will get hit. There's certain markets that are just a boomer bust market. California is one of them. They always fluctuate like that. Arizona does that, Vegas does that. Um, the East Coast, Washington DC does that. Um, now a big popular one is um, uh, uh, Seattle. Um, you know, So you'll see a lot of those markets, they will start coming down a little bit. But here's the thing is if you're buying it for the long haul, if you're buying it as an investment, because a lot of your guys move to a place, they're not necessarily gonna stay there forever, right? They might move around, they might stay there forever. It's a lot more common now, and a lot of our guys are from the markets where we have deep roots now. So yep. if you're gonna be, here's, the, here's what I tell people is like, look, and here's the cool thing is like rates, by the way, so like when I bought my investment property in 2006, my rate was six and three quarters, right? Like my payment didn't make any sense because my rate was so high. Well, anybody that's bought a home since 2009 has locked into a rate below four and a half percent, most of them under three and a half percent, because for four years there, we had rates below four percent. And so the amount that you pay for a mortgage now is going to be much less than you would pay to rent the exact same home. So any investment property you've bought as well, cash flows really well. So let's say the market just tanks, whatever, the whole economy tanks in six months from now. Well, if you are cash flowing your investment properties four, five, six hundred bucks a month, you're not just gonna let them go or sell them or whatever, plus you got all this equity in them, you're just gonna hang on to them and ride through it, right? And so back before, the problem was I bought a house in Lehigh when I first, when I was like 23 or 24, and uh, my payment was 2,100 a month. I was renting it for 1,600 a month, but I didn't care because when I closed, I got a $9,000 commission and the market was going up. So I was like, oh, this is great. If I lose 500 a month, who cares? Well, all of a sudden the market turns and goes down. Of course, right. I got into trouble, right? So that's what everyone was doing back then. Well, now every single investment property, that's why cash flow, and that's what I'll talk about when we talk about how to properly invest, cash flow is everything. Because as long as that house is cash flowing, it doesn't matter what the market does. That's the nice thing about real estate if versus a stock. Long. Like a stock, if the market goes down, you lose value like immediately. Mm. With a rental property, so I'll give you an example. Um, I bought my house, put it on a 15-year loan. Uh, my rate was awesome. So I, with what I put down, I put 25% down. Um, so my payment on my house that I live in right now is $2,500 a month. Um, of that payment, because it's a 15-year loan, $1,800 a month goes towards the principal. So my real cost out of pocket is 700 bucks a month to that interest. Does that make sense? Yeah. I rent my basement out for 1,200 a month. I literally make $500 a month to live in my house because the rate was so good when I bought that house. Well, rates are still at below four and a half. So anybody that's buying these investment properties, even if the entire like economic model collapses here and you know we have a huge recession, Housing, if you look at the last six recessions of the United States, 
five of the six real estate actually still went up or stayed steady during that recession. It was only the last one where real estate actually went down as well. And so all these reasons why real estate went down before don't exist anymore. People have equity in their homes. They have great rates. They have great payments. They all cash flow. Mm. And so these are the reasons why <clears throat> I do not see, especially the investment type properties, that under $400,000 property, they're just, there's no way they're going to go down because nobody's going to sell those in the market if the market were to go down. Right. They've got too much equity already built in them. Yeah. And then Utah's, I mean, Salt Lake right now is trying to legalize anybody can rent out their basement because there's just nowhere to live. Like people literally don't have places to live. Is that just because the population's growing? Is yeah. That what yeah. Saying? Yeah. So we just have too much population growth for what happened was you had a period from 2008 to 2012 where there wasn't a lot of building going on. Everybody was terrified. No, all the builders were out of it. They couldn't get loans, couldn't buy land. So we actually had like a normal healthy economy. You're pumping in 600,000 new homes every quarter into the market, right? Well, that didn't happen for like four years. So there's this huge shortage, not only in Utah, but all over the country um, in a lot of markets. So any market that's growing like a Nashville or some of those more popular markets, you know, your Arizona's, your Vegas, they still have a, a lack of properties. So a lot of our guys now with solar, it's a year-round job. A lot of our guys are making big residuals now. Um, they're making great money. And we see a lot of them, you know, spend money on a car or something, you know, that just doesn't build wealth yeah. for them, right? They'll make a, and a lot of time it's their first time actually making pretty good money. And so the temptation is to, you know, buy the car, buy a watch, buy whatever, right? And so we're constantly trying to help them understand how to build wealth and where to put their money. Um, I don't think a lot of them know how to do it. And so if you're living in Boston, you're living in Florida, you're living in Southern California, like what's the first step to, and then I guess the other question is, is there's a lot of other investment opportunities out there. So mm -hmm. if you go to talk to a financial advisor, they're going to tell you one thing, whatever. Why, why real estate? And then how, to, how do you do it? Cool. So a couple things about real estate specifically, and by the way, rich dad, poor dad, rule number one, right? Don't buy a car, buy an investment that pays for the car. And that's the benefit of real estate mm. with cash flows. So my number one rule, no matter what in real estate, is it has to cash flow. That's the most important factor. Is there a certain amount that you look for? Or? I think a minimum 200 bucks. Um, it's kind of a minimum up to 800, I don't know, whatever. Like there's different, you know, it depends on what you're putting down. But, and that's the nice thing about putting down 20% is you don't have that mortgage insurance, right? But even if you're buying your own place, I mean, it's cheaper than renting. Whatever you buy pretty much is going to be better than renting the same home. And so you want, even you know, if your mortgage is a couple hundred dollars more per month, it's still better than renting, right? right? And, uh, you know, X amount of it's going to be going towards the principal. So if you really look at it, it's like a forced savings account. Right? Yeah, it's still going into another money. account. But so the rule number one is it's got a cash flow. Um, no matter what, you want to make sure the house cash flows because that way it, nothing else matters. And that's how you get rich in real estate. So you said, why real estate? Well, if I put $10,000 in the stock market, like, um, and all of a sudden I buy a stock at $20 a share and it goes down to 15. I mean, I just lost 25% of my money if I sell the stock with real estate. So like with, I have an investment property, I have a condo and my payment on the condo is 1200 a month. I rent it out for 1400 a month of that 1200 a month. And I put it on a 20 year loan. Um, I think every month, like 550 of it or 650 of it goes towards the principal. But so with the 200 cash flow plus the 550 principal, it's as if somebody else walks over to my bank every single month and drops $750 in my account. 
So let's say the market tanks tomorrow and stocks go down 25%, real estate goes down 25%. I still have somebody walking over to the bank every single month, dropping 750 into my account. That's real money in that property. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so by the time I hang on to it, so my whole philosophy with real estate, when people are getting started, the biggest mistake they make is they don't know what to do. So they just kind of listen to whoever, their buddy that's in real estate or whatever else. And there's a couple things you can do to make sure you have somebody that knows what they're doing. Um, and like the number, the two most important questions I would ask anybody is wherever you are in Florida, Miami, doesn't matter. Um, number one is ask the realtor to show you his own portfolio. You want to work with an agent that's buying investment properties. If they're not buying, they don't know what they're doing or they don't know how to find them or they don't believe in it. Um, and then the second thing is to show you how many homes he's selling. Because it really is, there's just an art to finding deals. Like certain people know how to get stuff done. Like my team last year sold 200 properties um, here in the state of Utah. And uh, 80% of those deals, like we just know how to find those best investment properties. We're going up against agents that are brand new. We're going to get the deal because we know how to man maneuver that and get the best deals for our clients. So you want to work with an agent that's doing a lot of volume and that's buying investments himself. Mm. Um, but so when you're buying an investment property though, that's kind of the key thing is having a strategy towards what you're trying to do. So like for me, I'm a pretty aggressive investor in other things. I've invested in seven private companies of my buddies. Some have done really well. I've been able to do that because of my real estate investing. My buddy Trevor Milton, he owns Nikola Motors. Um, they just got valued at $1.1 billion. And four years ago, he told me about this idea he had for the company. And when he showed it to me, I knew it was gonna work. And I was like, dude, you've got to let me invest here. And he's like, well, it's not even worth our time unless you put in a half a million bucks. And thankfully, I'd bought a bunch of real estate. I said, if you give me three months, I can sell a few houses. I sold those, invested a half a million with him. And I was, I'm, I'm on the original docs of that company. And on paper, you know, I mean, we'll see how it all turns out. I can't do anything yet. But I mean, it's been a huge success. That was only because of my real estate investing. Mm. But I have a strategy where I have... 10 properties right now, I have 11 total, I have 10 properties that I'm never gonna sell. And every month, it's as if somebody walks to the bank and it's almost 800 to 1,000 bucks per property, they're just dropping in my account between paying down principal and the cash flows. And so I know by 55, I can literally squander every other dollar I make. I can heavy invest in air, private companies, stocks, bonds, what gold, whatever I want to, I can go live an extravagant life. But no matter what, as long as I don't do anything on these properties and I keep buying X amount per year, then I know at 55, then I'll have either 15 to 20,000 a month cash flow, or I'll have five to $10 million worth of real estate paid off because somebody else is paying that for me every single month. All I have to do is manage the properties. So you want to have a strategy going in. Like a lot of people say, I want to flip homes or I wanna buy investment properties. Well, what's your strategy or what's your point? Like, are you doing it for retirement? Are you doing it for the long haul? Are you doing it because you wanna make a quick 20 grand? And that's why, so like with us, every every single investor will sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And it's kind of a consultation basically where we say, look, what's your goals? And then it really depends on how much money you wanna invest. So if you have a hundred grand, we can show you, all right, here's a couple different ways you can do this. You can buy a duplex, you can buy this fourplex, you could buy a couple condos, you could buy a house. Let's do that. Let's assume someone has a hundred grand. Okay. And, and you said that your team will sit down and help them with the strategy. So and do you have do you have a is it a property management group that you would recommend managing? Most of the time, I, I mean, if you have one or two properties, I say just do it yourself. Okay. Um, once you once you hit three or four or yeah, five, yeah, I mean, then... the, your guys make so much money out doing what they do best. Like you don't want to waste time managing a property, right. right? And so I just tell people like, if you make good money, you know, pay the eight to twelve percent to a property manager and let him do it for you. But 
I manage my own still. You know, I mean, it's I put three to six hours a month into it probably. Right. It's, it's really not that much. Um, and if you buy the right types of properties, they're pretty easy to manage for the mm. most part. And again, like rentals, especially in Utah, rents are so strong that, you know, I had my basement, I rented out, I told you, the girls want to move out at the end of this month. And so um, I put up an ad, literally just put a thing on my Instagram yesterday and I had six people ask to come see it. Mm. And so it's that simple. So it's cash so flowing, you rent it out, you got a whole basement full of girls. And a whole bunch of people that want you're living the life. And you're a single dude. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good game. We keep it. We keep Strategy. it. Strategy. I heard you. Board, though, I heard right? you. <laughs> hey, uh, so so get back to the. I've got a hundred grand. What next? Yeah. So you got a hundred thousand bucks, and you're buying investment property. Okay. Um, yeah. So say someone comes to you and says, Jimmy, I've never done real estate. I put a little in my 401k every month to save on taxes, and. Uh, I've got this hundred grand that I've saved. Cool. What, what do I do? Let's assume they have a good living situation. They're already yeah. either in a home or they have a great situation on rent or whatever. Okay, so if they got hundred grand. So with a hundred grand, if we leverage that to the 20%, that means we can buy 500,000 bucks worth of real estate. See what I'm saying? And you always want to put down 20% anyways, is my opinion, because by putting down the 20%, you're hedging against any bad market. You're never going to be upside set, down. set some aside for renovation or repair though? Um, so say you no, have no, because if you get a good property, I mean, we're not going to spend the whole hundred grand anyway. But if you have a good property, your cash flows are going to pay for that anyway. Plus, you get a deposit from the renter, so you've got money to deal okay. with on a short term. So your basis. strategy is buy a rental that already is currently cash flowing. Yeah. So if you have a hundred grand, that means you can buy five hundred grand worth of real estate okay. at twenty percent down. So if you were to buy, so for example, you could buy a house and a duplex. You could buy a pair of, con, you know, three or four condos. Depends on the market you're in. Here in Utah, five hundred grand. If you had five hundred grand, I'd say probably buy like a condo. You could buy for around two hundred thousand. That would cash flow probably about two hundred to two, probably about two fifty a month after HOA fees. So that's just a good safe investment, right? You put that thing. Aside, you'll get a good renter. It's probably built 2,000 or newer. Um, and then with the other 300,000, buy you know maybe a house with a basement apartment. You can buy like a, a duplex. You could buy um, a single family home. And you help them find the house. Yeah, so you want to get with somebody that you know can help you find good investment properties. Um, and you guys aren't just in Utah. I mean, you're buying houses all over the place. Yeah, so my team, we have a national market as well. So we're uh, currently in Florida, we're in Memphis. Um, we're opening up a few other markets there. And I have, so I have a network of realtors all over the country. So, I mean, if anybody wants to reach out to me, you can. Um, Jimmy Rex, just Google me. I'm super easy to find. But, um, and I can help connect you to an agent, a good agent in every market. I'm happy to do that for any of your people. Like, just make sure that they've got an agent. That, and I'll vet the agent out. I'll, I'll make a phone call and make sure they know what they're doing with investments. Because there's agents that do investments, there's agents that don't. Like, I actually, I'm putting a book together. It's almost finished now. I interviewed the top 100 millennial real estate agents in the country. And one of the questions I asked them was to tell me what their real estate portfolio was like. And of the top 100 agents, less than 10 of them owned more than three properties. Crazy. Wow. That is crazy. It was like they weren't buying. Like, I think millennials, for whatever reason, like the younger generation, I don't know. But they're, uh, so they're you really want to deal with somebody... Yeah, I mean, I've literally, last year alone, we sold 120 investment properties. Like, we know what to look for. I'm never going to put you in something I wouldn't buy myself. Like, I was, I went through that 2008, 2009 market. I sat across from couples literally divorcing at the dinner table across from me. Like, I, I value so much that people, and that's the thing is, too, is like, you get a reputation, you know, for good or bad real quick if you're just trying to push people into properties. Um, there's agents that are newer and they don't know any better. There's agents that are hungry, um, literally, and they're just trying to get a commission. You want to deal with somebody that they don't need you to buy a home this month in order to get paid. They can mm -hmm. wait till the right 
opportunity comes along. Yeah, makes sense. I think that's important. Okay, so um, you could buy 500 grand worth of property, so your team would help them find a, a good investment with their money, and then they take that 20%, and then what? Yeah, so you put, so you, you put the 20% down on the property, and now, and, and again, this is the point of having a strategy. You, so if you wanna be, let's say you wanna be retired at 50, you're 24 years old, and that's 26 years. So you know you can put half these properties on a 20-year loan, half on a 30-year loan, and essentially you're going to be retired by the time you're 50 years old if you own X amount of real estate. So if we just take the average real estate over the last 75 years appreciates 3.2% a year, year over year in any market across the country. So if you take that very conservative number, 3.2%, because you're not selling, so it doesn't matter if it goes down one year and up other years, over time, call it 3.5%. If you so then you kind of figure out how much real estate you need to buy over the next five years and ten years in order to get to that number. So if you need to have, if you want to retire with ten million dollars cash, or you want to have cash flows of say fifty thousand a month or whatever it is, it's pretty easy to look back and see how aggressive you need to be buying real estate. And if you have where you guys make you know a lot of money, um, you can aggressively or very passively build that portfolio depending upon how much time you're going to take to get to that number that you're looking for. Yeah, that's great. So let's build, if it's possible, let's build a rough portfolio. So say okay. this person that has 100 grand is 25. And let's say they do wanna retire when they're 55 mm -hmm. and that they wanna do real estate. So let's say they wanna retire and have 10 million bucks. You mentioned that number. What does it look like? How much money do they need every year to be putting into real estate? And and what what would their involvement be? Because you did For mention, sure. we, we interviewed one time, we had Keith Nelson, one of the early founders of Vivian Inc. Yeah, um, I sold his cabin last year. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we had him come talk to our group and one of the, the financial pieces of advice he gave us is exactly what you said, where your time is best spent, you'll make the most money doing your job, right? Because that's what you're paid the best to do. Right. I probably won't make a lot of money learning how to do your job, right? right? So find people that can that you trust that can that can help you with it. So let's walk through and maybe show for the people listening. Yeah, we'll do what's a full, possible. Full breakdown of something. Yeah. Okay. So let's build kind of like a like a mock scenario if we can. So let's say that hundred thousand that kid that has a hundred thousand dollars to invest. Let's say he's twenty five years old, and wants to retire when he's fifty five, and have ten million bucks. So walk me through a scenario with how much would they have to earn and put towards real estate and what would it look like over time? Cool, and this is the power of leveraging real estate. It's pretty easy, so we can just reverse engineer it. So we got 30 years, 25 to 55, and we wanna be at 10 million bucks. So we'll just assume the market goes up three and a half percent, that's that medium. Then over the course of 30 years, all we need is to buy, in today's money, five million bucks worth of real estate. In 30 years, it'll be worth 10. I mean, it'll probably be worth a lot more than that, but we can conservatively, conservatively yeah. say it'll be worth 10 million bucks then, okay? Um, and even if it's only worth five, let's say it never goes up a dollar, you'll still have $5 million paid off in 30 years. But so, so you basically wanna break it down. So you say, okay, if I make, say the guy makes 150,000 a year, um, wants to put, we'll say, a fifth of that into real estate every year. So maybe, you know, uh, we'll call it 25,000 bucks a year. So with $25,000 down, you could buy about $120,000 worth of real estate, 125, right? So that's like a condo or something. So let's say one condo, yeah, or you can buy, or every, every 14 months you can buy a, a house in like, for example, the houses in Memphis, they mm -hmm. go for like 160. Um, these houses cash flow three, 400 bucks on average, just nice homes like, Perfect investment. So let's say year one, you buy one property. Year two, you buy one property. Year three, you buy 
two properties. This is pretty conservative. In three years, you own four properties. Well, let's say from then on out, you're buying two a year because you're making a little more money. Or we'll say every three years, you buy four properties, okay? Well, by the end of 10 years, you own eight pieces of real estate that when you bought it, you were leveraging that 20%, 25, 20% down. So your eight properties, let's say that they're combined worth 1.5 million, but you're only, um, you now have a third of the way there. I mean, this is how easy this can yeah. be. It's that conservative. So we're thinking on that scenario, 20 to 40 grand a year. Literally, you can build, <clears throat> a four, this is the beauty of the real estate. Like I, I own 11 properties. I'm telling you every month, it's as if somebody walks over there and half these renters, I've never even met them. And they literally, my bank every single month, it's like nine or 10 grand gets dropped in there. As long as I don't touch those properties, you, that's how easy it is. You don't have to buy, it's, it sounds intimidating, I gotta buy 10 properties, yeah. I'm behind. Literally buy one property a year for the next 10 years, and you'll have $2 million, $3 million worth of real estate already. Mm. And then let's say the, over the next 10 years, you double it, you buy two a year. You now own 30 properties by the time you're 45 years old. You own 30 real estate properties. I mean, every single one of those will have over half the mortgages paid off by then. You've already accumulated probably over $5 million of equity just in that 20 years simply by buying one property a year and then after 10 years buying two properties a year. So as a retirement plan then, you either sell the houses and invest in something else or you collect the rents. Yeah, every you month. literally can just live off the rents. I have, you know, a buddy of mine, his dad in Seattle, he owns 80 properties. And he just started with one when he was 25 years old. And then when he got money, bought a second one and bought a third one. And so the mistake that I made when I first got in the business, I bought those 13 homes, is I didn't know any better. I was kind of like your guys. I was just like, I just was told to go buy real estate, right? And so I was just buying. My broker was like super aggressive. He's like, go buy this, go buy that. And so I wasn't cash flowing. So the key to this whole thing, I want to emphasize the words cash flow, because no matter what else, if you're Property cash flows, this is a retirement plan. You don't ever need to sell the property. Rents, look at it, Google it. Rents go up year over year. They've never gone down. Even in the last recession, rents went up. People need a good place to rent. And it's not hard to find good renters. And if your property cash flows conservatively 200 or more per month, you can even drop the rent 200 bucks a month. You're still cash flowing the property. Mm. That's great. So I want to pivot a little bit. You've clearly been really successful with real estate. Um, and a lot of realtors drop off, right? I mean, they they say, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we went that... from 2,800 to 1,100 in the recession. So over half. Yeah. 60%. Professional cleansing. Dude, it was pretty nice, actually. We all knew the each purge, other for a while. Man. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> the purge, man. Yeah, the It was. Um, but realtors have a huge attrition rate, right? Yeah, um, 93% don't renew their license two years later. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's just like our job. Yeah. I mean, direct sales, I think, in, in real estate, for all intents and purposes, is direct sales as yeah. well. Um, with ours, we have a, a high attrition rate that we're always trying to figure out ways to lower. Um, people are trusting us with their careers and we're trying to provide a really good opportunity, but sometimes sales just isn't for them. Right. When you first started, were you naturally good at real estate or was it something that you had to really work at? And then as you started realizing this recession was coming, you started during the recession essentially. What was your strategy to yeah. just work through that. So when I first got my license, my first six months, I think I sold four or five homes. I was surviving. I was okay. I was like, I went on one trip. I was doing okay. But it honestly, it was like, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't have 
very good skills. How are you getting the, how did you sell them? Like where did yeah, you, how you I would just them? tell people I was an agent. So like my buddy's dad, my You're brother. exhausting all your warm contacts. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that, even that at that, like I remember, I remember one of the first things I did is I literally wrote, I hand wrote an envelope for like everyone I knew, like my parents' ward, right? Um, just anyone I knew that had like was older, I tried to reach out to them. Um, and I did, you know, it wasn't really going that well. You wrote like a handwritten letter. Well, well, I would handwrite the envelopes, and then I had like a mass letter that yeah. I was sending out. But, but and, and just if you're like, complete. I mean, I've had friends that have sold insurance and been realtors, whatever. And to be honest, I don't want to work with them until I actually believe this is a long-term career for them, right? Yeah, yeah, so, it's, and and we say this all the time: like nobody takes you serious until you're consistent. Yeah. And. I would add to that that you've had a sustained long-term career. Yeah, right? like so. I look now, like what I know in real estate, I've been doing it 14 years now, right? And I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, me today versus me when I was two, three, four years in the business, like you would have been crazy to pick that guy over me now mm, as right. your agent. I just know so much mm -hmm. more now to help you, right? But what I lacked back then in experience, um, what I did is after six months, I went to this seminar and I hired this top coach. I mean, I was paying $1,000 a month. I did not have money either. I put it on a credit card. that I made them wait three weeks to run it the first time. Like, I threw my hat <laughs> over the fence, and I was like, I'm doing this. Yeah. But I literally laminated all, all the scripts. They gave me what to say, and I laminated them, put them in my shower, and I would chant them every morning in the shower. And then I would meet my buddy at the office at 7 a.m., and we would role play how to talk to people. And then my coach, he made me wear a suit every day. So like 24, 25 years old. I, I mean, I just dressed the part and pretty soon after three or four months, I sounded the part. And so I could turn any negative into a positive. And people said, well, you're too young. You don't have any experience. And I would just say, well, you know why that's a good thing? Because the agent that's going to go home at night, I'm going to be taking that call at 9 p.m. and actually meet the, I, what I, you know, you're my only client. I'm going to give you all my effort. There's ways to. You and Jerry Maguire on them. Yes, a little bit. <laughs> Show <laughs> hey, me the money, baby. It's funny that you mentioned the shower because when I was learning how to sell, that was one of the things that, that I would say is pitch twice in the shower. So every time I was in the shower, I'd be like, how's it going, man? Yeah. My name's Ty, I'm out here with Vivid, right? Like I'd, well, I'd it's funny because it. people see me now, it's the hardest thing for me to train new agents that they see me now. I mean, I spent 120 days last year outside of the state of Utah. I, I have a really good team. I have my buyer's agent, Tyler, he's sold over 2,000 homes to investors. So any investor I can turn over to Tyler, know they'll get taken care of. My brother, Dale, you know, makes several, uh, you know, 50, 60 sales a year now. I can let anybody, he can work with anybody and hell, does as good a job as me. Um, my assistant, Chris, who's kind of more my manager now, he runs my team. So I can be as efficient from Japan or South Africa as I can from Utah, as long as I'm answering my phone and doing those calls. But new agents see what I'm doing now. They see me going to the sporting events, right? Like yesterday, I was at the Patriots game. Right. Um, they want to do that now. They didn't see that. Literally, I did not. From So when I hired that coach, I did not take a vacation for three years. Every single day, I prospected on the phone, called for sale by owners. That was my bread and butter. I so how did you get the, those lists? How did you do uh, that? There's a service. It's actually based out of Utah, but um, they just, you pay them, you know, 100 bucks a year and they, or 100 bucks a month. They give you the list every and morning. You just dial them in and Literally, say, I, I, I stop it. I haven't done it in six years. I know I have that word for word still because <laughs> I, I, I did it one year. I counted in 2008. You understand the market was so bad. Anybody that I met with, I had to honestly tell them if we're going to buy a home, you got to keep this for a while because it's going to go down 15 to 20%. And so, and anybody that was selling usually owed 15 to 30% more than what they were needing to sell it for. And so it was just a mess. I mean, it was so hard. And I remember in 2008, I called 4,800 for sell by owners. I listed 187 of them. 
So I listed 187 wow. people. Wow. I was their best hope. I sold like 11 of them. Like it was, and, I was, and I was the top agent in the office. And I mean, closed 11. Yeah, I mean, it was brutal, man. That's just why I love Vivint because I literally, you guys saved my career. I started reaching out to people with money. But, um, but yeah, this is what I did for, I mean, so in 2007, I actually sold 98 houses. That was when I won some awards and did some things. But I literally would just every morning from 8 a.m. to 11.30, it didn't matter. Like it was guaranteed, it was automatic. I too many people negotiate with themselves. They're like, am I going to do this? Am I not? Like, you just kind of cut it off. Like, this is not a negotiation. This is what I do every day. And every single day I was on the phone today and I didn't get off till I made my 30 contacts. And I knew if I made 30 contacts, when I first started, I knew my numbers. I, my coach always made me put my numbers in every day. So when I first started, I had to call like 78 for sell by owners to get an appointment. By the time I quit calling for sell by owners, I don't know, five years ago, I was like one out of 11. But I knew if I jumped on the phone every day, even when it was one out of 50, if I called two days straight, I knew I was getting an appointment every two days. Well, even if you suck, I mean, one out of 50 sucks. But if I suck enough, one out of 50, that's two or three appointments a week. Let's say I close half of them. I'm selling, I'm listing 75, 80 homes a year. I'm selling even half of those 40, that's 40 sales. You're making a couple hundred grand a year. So it was just, wow. it was always a numbers game to me. I, I always had it broken down to the dollar. I knew like my phone calls were worth $47 per call or 58 bucks per call. And that way, when somebody was rude to me or something, I uh, I would just like, thank you, 58 bucks and hang up, you know? <laughs> it, it, that's what it was to me. It was a game. It was, like it, I never worried about the individual call or the individual appointment because I knew if I went to work every day, money would come in at X amount. There's, it just goes to show there's no substitute for putting in the hours and then being disciplined, right? Yeah. And a lot of our guests have talked about that, that the discipline actually is more important than the talent. And, you know, they'll say, I was, I'm was i not the most talented guy, but I'm the most disciplined person on the team. Yeah. And I'll put in the hours every day and I'll be disciplined to my schedule. So uh, to hear you reinforce that is pretty cool. When the talent comes, right? Like I yeah. remember when I when I was reaching out to those Vivint guys, I'd go sell with them. Like I would go around to each of their offices and meet them. That's how I met you, Ty. Mm -hmm. Like I went same thing, um, and I would go and I sell with them. And it was funny because I'd watch them get their butts kicked on the doors, and these were the best of the best. And like in my mind, it's like they close everybody, but then you go out with them for a day, and you're like, oh yeah. man, these They're guys human. are getting hammered, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So well, and I think when people get into it, well, what was the statement you said about Jimmy in his thirties? Yeah, no, like people say, you know, like, like when do you even work? Like, you're always doing all these different things. And it's like, I, I still put the hours in, but it's just differently now. I network and I'm looking for deals and appointments and stuff like that. But um, my big joke is Jimmy in his 30s owes a lot to Jimmy in his 20s because I was so focused. I was so dialed in. And I just, I never, I just, well, I had an experience when I was a kid where I got, I, I got cut from the baseball team when I was 14 years old. And long story short, me and my 15 friends were sitting there together and they called up the all-stars one by one. And when they called them all, I was the last, me and my 15 friends sitting at the year end so ceremony. So everyone's parents are there, everyone's sisters, brothers, all the coaches, everyone gets called up but me. I'm sitting there by myself, all my friends on the field getting their all-star trophy. And I literally, and I knew in that moment, I had the self-awareness. I don't even know where this came from. I just started bawling because I was just felt stupid. I, my parents, I felt like I let them down, let everybody down, let myself down. But I knew I didn't work hard. And I remember in that moment, I said, I will never feel like this again because I didn't work hard enough. Hmm. And I knew I would never be outworked again. And so that's in that moment, like, you know, having that self-awareness, like if things aren't going your way, you know what you need to do better. If you really are honest with yourself, you know you didn't earn it. You know you didn't work hard enough. You know you're not getting up early enough. You know you're not studying your scripts enough, whatever it is. 
And if you work hard at that thing, it has to, success is a, literally, it's a scientific formula. If you do X, Y happens. And so, I don't know, I just tell everybody, you know, have that self-awareness enough to know that you need to put in the effort and eventually the result will always come. Yeah, I, I've, I always say that the most frustration comes from trying to enjoy the perks before doing the work, right? Like think about your peers that haven't had the same success. They wanna to go to the games, they try to do it and then they end up frustrated or broke because they're trying to have the perks before they've done the work. Right? I always say, if you're hard on yourself, life's easy on you. If you're easy on yourself, life's hard on you. Yeah, same exact thing. That's that's great. So what where do you think that that hustle came from because you have to recognize that as rare in an industry where 93% turnover, right? And you go through the the most difficult real estate downturn that we've ever seen in our lives. So what makes you different? Where does that hustle come from to say, "You know what? I'm just going to double down, stay in the boat." laminate my scripts, read them in the shower. Yeah. My roommates are going to be wondering what's going on up there. Well, part of it was just, I mean, it was like, I just, like Tom Brady said the other day when they asked him, you know, he said, I just like to win. I mean, that's kind of part of it. I just, I wasn't going to allow myself to not win. Like, I, I don't know where it comes from. I think I, one thing I've done really well is I've, I've tried to always, I, I believe that life's like a filter and if you look at it as like a funnel and whatever you put in the funnel eventually comes out the bottom, but people want to focus on the bottom. And whatever mentor taught me this at a young age or whatever, I, sorry, they focus on, you can't focus on the bottom. That's the result. That's the, like, you know, that's the cell that comes. But you got to focus on what goes in the funnel. I can control my effort. I can control what I'm studying. I can control what I'm putting into my head or, you know, I control my health, all those different things. And if I'm controlling what goes in the funnel, I just know something positive will come out. And I think I just had a lot of mentors early on. I, I, I honestly that experience when I was a kid where I just, I, I, I just, I became like known as like this real estate hustler, this real estate guru at a young age. I was on stages in front of 4,000 people. I couldn't fail at that point, right? Like I knew I needed, and I, and the cool part is, is during those time frames, like you're always creating new whys. Like, I don't know if you've read David Goggins' new book, you know, I'm, I'm in it me. right now, I'm almost done with that. He's pulling stuff from everywhere from 30 years ago, right? Like that's how it was. Like some days I wasn't motivated because of the rewards. Some days I wasn't motivated by the money. Some days I wasn't motivated by the debt. Some days I wasn't motivated because I had to be. Some days I had to pull from somewhere else. And honestly, I think that if we can dream what our life is going to be, then we can create that life. Too often we let life happen to us. Like most people, you become friends with who lives by you. You go do what people ask you to do because you didn't create your own whys, your own things that you want to accomplish in life. And I can honestly say in 2010, I had a, the one thing I did smart was I, I hired these mentors that were really good and I paid them a lot of money. Uh, I mean, thousand bucks a month, 1500 bucks a month, whatever it took. But they really taught me like you create your life by design or else it's gonna happen for you. And so in 2010, we literally designed what I wanted my life to look like. And so I never was bothered by the day-to-day -day as much as I knew what I needed to do to get to that life. Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say, like, my life today is what I envisioned <clears throat> it being in 2010. And that's what I try to help people do is, because in the moment, you don't know why you're knocking that door. You don't know why you need to give a full effort today. And I mean, I'll give you a quick example. I, I go undercover with Operation Underground Railroad. Yeah, I was going to ask you about and that. And I was given that opportunity a couple of years ago. But one of the reasons that opportunity opened up to me was because I was able to write a pretty sizable check. Um, and then raise a bunch of money from other influential friends that I'd met. And I took some training, all these things. But I didn't know when I was in 2009, 2008, 2010, 
when I was getting my butt kicked over and over that one day I'd have the opportunity to rescue over 100 kids from being sex trafficked. I knew if I became somebody, though, I knew opportunities were going to be in my life. And that's what I know today is at 37, I don't know who needs me 10 years from now. I don't know whose life I'm going to change in eight years from now. But I know that who I am today, the little decisions I make today are going to determine whether I can be there for that person in those years. And so that motivates me. I keep a a baseball on my desk. It's a, it's a World Series baseball. Um, last year, the Dodgers and the Astros made the World Series. Um, my oldest, well, not my oldest brother, my older brother, JD, um, well, two years ago, three years ago, the Indians, I'm a diehard Cleveland Indians fan, made the World really? Series. Oh, diehard. When I was oh, a yeah. kid, I picked the wrong team. <laughs> but, and you uh, stuck with it, huh? Yeah, I mean, we've had a good run. I don't run think anyone's ever years. told me I'm a diehard Cleveland Indians fan. Oh, dude, I'm diehard. So when they went to the World Series against the Cubs, I'd set aside, I ended up dropping, I'll just say it because the numbers matter, but $31,000 to go. I sat front row. <laughs> You're like, I've been waiting World Series game. Yeah, no. And, well, because in 2007, they played the Yankees and the market had just collapsed. I mean, literally two months earlier. And so I went to one playoff game but I couldn't go to the Red Sox series, if you remember. That was when they ended up winning the uh, beat the Rockies. Yep. But And I was so mad, I didn't have money to do it. And I promised myself I was going to go the next time the Indians made the World Series, I was going to go to every game. And so I did, but the damn Cubs went, and they <laughs> their fans were so anxious. Yeah, they hadn't been there since 1945. The prices oh, dude, it was the most insane. expensive World Series tickets in history. So for game three in Wrigley, two tickets behind the dugout, I paid 10 grand. But it was like I didn't <laughs> care because I promised myself I'd be there. Well, fast forward a year later. I mean, you I, could have just sat in cheaper seats. You know what? I didn't want to sit in the cheaper seats because my <laughs> ass worked hard when I was in 2010, 11, 12. So I earned that front row yeah, seat. Yeah, we don't compromise on the dream, man. Yeah. That's right. No, that, I mean, I envisioned that. Like I, I had said, when next time this happens, I'm going to be there. Well, the next year they're playing the Yankees in the first round. I'd set aside the money again to do the same thing, you know. And uh, we were number one team going to the playoffs, won 22 games in a row. And they lost to the Yankees in the first round. Well, my brother JD, um, you know, who literally is a kid, he was four or five years older than me, he would throw, we had a, a batting cage in our backyard. He would throw balls to me all night. He'd go hit me grounders. I mean, this dude put in so much time and effort to me as a kid to make me a good baseball player. And his diehard team is the Dodgers. And they hadn't made the World Series since 1988. And so when they made, you know, they beat the Cubs, they made the World Series. And I called him, I said, dude, you, you're going, you're taking, his kids are all diehards. He ended up watching, he told me over 120 games that year on wow. TV. Like they're diehard Dodger fans. He's like, I can't. They're, you know, he's between jobs. He's he's buying a new house. He's his kids getting ready for college, and he was just kind of like, I can't do it. I don't want to pick one kid because I don't want the rest to feel bad. And I'd set aside this money that you know what I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I hadn't worked hard ten years earlier. But I was able to buy him. You know, I cost whatever four grand a ticket. I bought him all these tickets behind the dugout game one. I just texted him to him. I said, Bro, love you, man. Thanks for everything you do for me, and go have fun at the game. And you know, to give my brother the opportunity, that, you can't redo that experience. They're, they either were in the World Series that year, or you either win or you didn't, you know. And yeah. to be able to do that for me, he called me, and I've never seen him get emotional. He started crying, you know, and he's like, dude. So like, cool. That, That's amazing. So to give that opportunity to him, so on my desk sits a dollar bill that's framed in a plaque that Tim Ballard gave me that was money we used to rescue these 100 kids and the baseball for my brother. So on days I don't feel like working, I can dig into those and be like, you know what? I don't know who needs me 10 years from now, but I'm gonna work my butt off today because I know that there's something coming down the line. I need to be there for that person. You've done a ton of cool stuff, and I know we don't have time to get into all of it, but I mean, you've traveled all over the world. You've been to uh, tons of games. I mean, you know I'm a big sports fanatic, so I know how much it costs to go to some of these big games, and I see you at some of them sometimes. And I'm like, geez, man, he is dropping some coin <laughs> at these because I know what they cost. And uh, 
What's the coolest thing you've been able to do? Um, I mean, just to, I mean, just like experience that you've been able to, you know, reap the benefit of from your hard work. So the easily the number one thing is the going undercover and rescuing these kids right. from being sexed. So talk sexed about that because we did last year we did a thing with um, Engage Now Africa, mm. and um, we opened it up to the sales force to donate uh, money out of their own checks to be used. To, to liberate people from human trafficking. So, what was the total? Do you remember? It was like 160 grand. We did awesome. it pretty fast, and it was all just it was all just people that work here that donated their money. And before you talk about it, we I think a lot of people feel the same way because if you look at it, I'm not useful carrying a gun in Africa. Like that's not you don't want me doing that. But I can work really hard, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people felt that where they're like, man, there's not a whole lot I can do boots on the ground, but I could fund it if you just need money. Let me go make some real quick. Let me go create accounts. And when you work with that kind of purpose, the life experience is, is insane. So maybe talk about what Underground Railroad is and, and how that passion has helped you produce. Yeah, so I mean, they, their whole purpose is to eradicate um, child sex trafficking across the world. There's over 2 million kids being sex trafficked. I first heard about it. Um, a guy named Paul Hutchinson was given a speech. He's kind of, he was the first guy that Tim used as kind of the wealthy business guy undercover. And Tim's um, like a former, what, Navy former SEAL guy CIA, or Former CIA. Um, he worked in the child sex issues kind of department, but they had all these kids they found that were being trafficked, but they weren't Americans. So because he worked for the government, he couldn't do anything. So he quit in order to be able to found this organization that could actually go in and rescue all over the world. Um, in fact, Jim Caviezel, uh, the mm-hmm. Passion yeah, of Christ yeah. and Count of Monte Cristo, he plays Tim in a movie coming out this summer called oh, The cool. Sound of Freedom. It's going to go national. Wow. Um, pretty cool story. But So Tim's story is pretty well known, but he started this organization, and they were only six months old when I, I first heard, I actually heard Paul speak about it. And uh, I mean, what they, I mean, literally we go undercover. So you go into these towns or these cities, like usually tourist cities. Um, I've been in, again, I've gone 11 different ops where I've had a chance to go undercover as one of the four consumers of the product, you could say. Um, we'll go down and we'll find the street hustlers. We'll find the people that lead us to the people that Don't you just want to like break their face? Like right when you see them, you have to like yeah, exercise I mean, you some have restraint, to, the, huh? the crazy part is you have to be in character. Like, I mean, it's not like, like it's serious enough that if they have any inkling that you're not what you're saying you are, you're dead. Like yeah. we were in Mexico one time in an alleyway and literally they had a SUV on both sides and the dude had a gun on him and we negotiated the price per child for 18 minutes. I mean, this was me using my Spanish to negotiate this, you know, and we have to talk tough because that's how you would do it if you were actually involved in that. And so, I mean, you don't have air room for like, for that. So you basically pretend you're acting. That's honestly the best way I can put it. Like mm. you just pretend you're an actor and you can kind of get into the role, but it's so serious because I mean, it's like, it literally is life and death. We've had multiple experiences. There's gotta be a mixture of, sorry to interrupt, but no, you're there's good. gotta be a mixture of almost like, because you have to be in so, so much, like such character, there's gotta be like this, like this it's like a mixed emotion, right? Like you like, need a soul shower. Like you just yeah. went through this, like <laughs> yeah. We only go every couple of months because it's like yeah, it is. It's heavy, you're right? right. Like when you're done, like I I vowed three or four different times that that was my last time, just mm. because it was so scary and dark and everything right. else. But when you take down the traffickers, like there's no feeling like that. There was one in particular, this guy, and oh man, he thought he just owned us, you know, and he was just talking like so bad towards about these women or these girls and um when we when we finally we got him arrested it was in latin america and they took him down and they actually were tasing him and it was literally like one of those 
probably a couple like extra the best notice, like best moment of my life you know That's and, so cool. and so like i went from like I'm, I'm done i think i've done this to like i will always be a part of this in some way mm. i read a thing on tim once you probably know the story but um he said a lot of times that because he doesn't go on ops anymore right because he's pretty recognized right yeah. he, he still comes like he'll come on the takedown but just be in the background yeah so i heard that um you know you have to go out you have to be in this character and you have to talk in a way that's just you know horrifying to get your job done right and he had said that one of the hardest things for him was the kids saw him as one of these just scum of the earth people and he had said that when they came in they they'll arrest everybody right so to make it look like that's right yeah, yeah so you get arrested they get arrested so they never know correct and so he said he caught a girl's eye as he was being arrested and she saw like her hopes like shatter like whatever and then um they were like on a far hill or something like that when he got released and the girl saw that he was a good guy mm. and he was like it was like a like a like a divine gift that she got to see that there were still like good people in the world it's like what a it's just crazy that you have those kind of experiences from having like a strong vision early on and from doing the work and hustling and now you get to to have a bigger purpose it really is like i can trace it back and like those I'm telling you guys, it was so hard to sell homes. I I had to call every single listing and every single seller every Friday and let them know nobody came to see your home. I had up to like 48 of them at one point. I mean, literally, these are people that have given me, you know, and it was so brutal. It was so hard. And I just knew like I have a bigger purpose in this. I always knew I had a bigger purpose and I had to do something. And um, so to look back, it's been 10 years since that time now. And to look back and just kind of honor that person, I, I like... To be honest, I just I'm grateful to that because I didn't have to do that. I could have taken cheap, easier routes, right? And um, I kept pushing and I kept pushing and um, like you don't know who needs you. I just I emphasize that you know so much. Like you don't know who needs you ten years from now, and you you owe it to yourself to make this your best year, your best moment, your best day, whatever it needs to be. And if you do that enough times in a row, like a beautiful life forms out of that. Well, and I I mean something a little less heavy. I see you taking uh, your nephew uh, mm-hmm. to games all the time, or nephews. I don't know how many you have, but um, yeah, you're like a super uncle. <laughs> wait, right? wait, wait, you like, have 26 I mean, nephews? Yeah. Okay, so you have 26 nephews. You're, you're the Funkle times 10, man. Yeah, I well, mean... No, it's kind of fun. Like, you know, growing up, my aunts and uncles, like, they weren't really there, which is fine or whatever. But my parents always were. And I, you know, I said, like, I just want to be able to be an influence for good in their life. So ever since they were tiny, tiny, I've taken them all to go do things all the time, concerts and games and things. And I always tell them the same thing. Look, no matter what happens in your life, like, Uncle Jimmy will never be mad at you. I'll never tell your parents anything you don't want me to tell them. I've talked to each of my siblings about that. I'm like, I am your advocate. Like, if you kill somebody, let's go find a place to bury the body. Like, you know, just joke with them. But mm-hmm. I just want them to have hey, that. Hey, called Jimmy. Hey, <laughs> called Jimmy. I'm not sure what well, the what's do. funny is like, out of this. what's cool is All like. All the cousins they, text each other. Have you called Jimmy yet? <laughs> but there's like a power in like any kid. Like, I believe, so I've. I've dated a lot of people. I've gone out a lot. I've met a lot of people. And I believe if people have a strong figure in their life, they're much more likely not to go looking for problems to find them. Right. They just need somebody they can count on in their life, whether it's a dad or an uncle or whatever. And so I just kind of wanted to be that person for them. So like, yeah, I mean, I, I take a lot of honor in that. You know, like my little nephew, the one you were referring to before we started the interview, my my nephew James, he's a big Red Sox fan. He's actually named after me. Um, and he's, you know, he's nine years old and he, huge Red Sox fan, knows everything about every player. And I was at my other nephew's football game that Saturday morning when game five of the World Series was going. And I left to go drive to the gym. And I thought, wait, 
Like I could totally be in LA tonight for game five of the World Series with my little nephew. So I just called my brother. I was like, hey, you don't mind if I borrow James for the Nazco? So we went out, you know, bought little front row seats right down the line. And the kid, I got a picture of him just leaning over, just looking and just with this look in his eyes of like, you know, he'll remember that for the rest of his life. And to be able to give that opportunity to him and to be able to share that with him, like. So cool. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's the kind of stuff I need to keep doing to like always be pushing, right? Because late at night, I mean, one more appointment, one more call, like you do need those experiences and you need your whys always to be there. And so to be able to do those things for my nieces and nephews, yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty fun. Well, that's great. I'll, we talk all the time to our guys about you gotta have, you have to have something more than just the money that you're working for. And that's your, you know, your why. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously your why is pretty purposeful. You've got your family, you've got this, the the rescue missions. I mean, you have all these different things that, that are what motivates you. So um, before we wrap up, I'm kind of interested in his podcast. Maybe yeah. give him an, an opportunity to kind of talk about your podcast. You're a hundred and something episodes in. Yeah, like 120 episodes in. What, what, you interview a ton of really successful people. Um, there has to be common denominators between these successful people. And maybe, would you mind just sharing like one or two, maybe just read, I know you mentioned you had brunch sure. with Tim Ferriss. And- I did, yeah. Yeah, I've had, you know, the opportunity to be undercover with Tony Robbins and meet with him seven or eight times. Um, Tim Ferriss and I had brunch two weeks ago, you know. I've I've been able to, um, and here's what I always say, I've, you know, I've really studied what it takes to be able to um, attract certain people into your life. And so I try hard to just show up in a way where those people want to be in my life. Like that's mm. kind of the key to meet anybody is, make them want to be around you. Like just come with so much value that they want to be around you. I, and that's kind of what I teach as far as that goes. But the podcast, I just, you know, the one thing that they all have in go, well, there are a couple things. Number one is they don't play victim. You can't play victim. Like no matter what's happened to you, good or bad in the past, you could have been screwed by your old company, your boss, your, your whatever, your parents could have been awful, whatever it might be. Like you might even be right. You could totally be right that you were screwed, but it doesn't serve you to play victim. And all these successful people, they're too busy building a life that they've kind of chosen that they don't have time to look back and and play victim or worry about things that they don't have any control over. So I'd say that's probably number one. Um, And the number two is honestly, I, I know it's not sexy, but that work ethic, man, like they're very laser focused on what they're trying to accomplish. Like no matter what it is, if you work hard enough at something, no matter what it is, as long as it's not like physically impossible to do, if you work hard enough at something, you're going to become really good at it. And so a lot of these people that I interview, they didn't start out at this super successful business person or whatever. Like I'll give you an example, Dave Bateman, he runs, um, he owns owner of Entrada here in Utah, 1800 employees. That dude lived in a basement apartment. That dude built that thing from scratch. You know, now it's become one of the biggest tech companies in Utah and all this stuff. But there was an 11 year period there where it was just a grind year after year after year. So people again, make the mistake of looking at that end result, but that work that just never ends and that laser focus on what they're trying to do. So like, I think it's important for people to not get caught up in the day-to-day things that can, I mean, so many people are gonna try to rob your time. And we'll be very selfish. If somebody came and tried to steal part of your land, like said, like, I'm gonna steal a quarter of your land, or if somebody came and was like, wanted to steal your money, you'd be like, no way in heck. But we let so many people steal our time. Hmm. And so what I always say, that's the only commodity you can't get back. That's the number one most important commodity. So really value who you're giving your time to. It's okay to say no. I, I, you know, one of my favorite sayings is every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to many other things. You know, I might not even know hmm. what those are. If I say yes to 
whatever to going and letting somebody use my time or something I'm not interested in. I just said no to building my career, to being with my family, to helping something, you know, doing something else. And so that's the other thing is, is, is learning what, you know, I think most people envision the end, like Trevor, the guy with the Nikola Motors company, you know, he, again, he just raised over $200 million at a $1.1 billion valuation, $1.2 billion valuation. He showed me the truck and he literally said to me, this is why I gave him my money. He, he just put his own 50 million from his previous company into it. And he goes, I know how to do it. It'll just cost me five or six years of my life. Like I know how to do it though. Like it's going to work. And he was so, he already knew the end was done. Mm. It was just a matter of now. And now he's worked 14, 15, 16 hour days for the last four years to get where he's at today. But, you know, having most people, people ask me all the time, like I'm in a rut trying to figure out what to do with my life. Jimmy, I'm coming to you because, you know, I see that you're, you know, living your passion and all that. What do I do? And I said, well, if your life went perfect for the next five years, if everything went your way for five straight years, what would your life look like? And most people don't know. They can't even answer the question. Well, of course, you're not going to build a dream life if you don't know what your dream life looks like. More people spend time planning a vacation than they do planning their year. So sit down for a minute, actually focus on, wait, what do I want? In five years from now, if everything goes my way, who am I hanging out with? What are we doing? Where are we at? What are we accomplishing? What are we doing for other people? What is happening in our lives? What conversations are we having? What, what difference are we making in the world? And if you, I mean, five years is a long time. There's people that are multi-billionaires today that didn't have a dollar five years ago. You can do anything in five years, but picture that life five years from now and then get your why big enough and you can accomplish anything. The roadmap's easy. You guys make so much money if you, you know, doing the solar. If anybody can have any dream and accomplish that through doing this job, they can get them to where they need to be. This show is called Electric People. It's about people that are sending a pulse through their industry. You've obviously done that, so congratulations on all your success. I look forward to seeing the, the future uh, shenanigans of Jimmy Rex. Appreciate well, it, thanks guys. for joining us, Jimmy, and thank you for tuning in. This has been Electric People. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.